Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working in the Weeds, a podcast from the UFIFAS Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. My name is Jay Farrell. I'm the director at the center. And as always, we have Christine sitting here uh, running the soundboard. Hello, everybody. Today is a little bit different. We are broadcasting from Indianapolis, Indiana at the 63rd Annual Aquatic Plant Management Society meeting. And we have a rare treat with us. We have a, uh, a colleague with us today that we don't usually have an opportunity to sit down with. We have Gene Gillilan from BASS. Well, Gene, we had a great session this morning talking about communication and how do we do better explaining what we do to the people out in the field. So we wanted to capture this conversation and parts of it by sitting down and, uh, and just expanding it and getting some on the, on the tape here. So Gene is the conservation director for BASS. I think most everybody has heard your name. They've read your articles in the past, but Tell them a little bit more about who Gene Gilliland actually is. Well, thank you for, for having me. Um, uh, yeah, I, as a conservation director for BASS, uh, Bass Anglers Sportsman Society, we just call it bass. Um, I, I wear a lot of hats. Uh, I, I work with our state affiliates. We have a, uh, a conservation director in, in 47 states and one Canadian province who are just volunteers and uh, they have a passion for protecting the resource. So I help mentor them because most of them don't have a lot of experience in biology or, or dealing with policy in public, uh, public settings. Uh, I also represent bass on a number of different boards and councils that do deal with federal and state policies. And I represent not just the company, but also bass anglers on the broader sense. Sometimes it, I just represent anglers, fishermen. So that's, that's part of my job. Uh, I also work obviously within the company uh, with our tournament staff. Uh, most people recognize Bass, uh, the company, as a tournament organization because that's kind of the face of what we do. But Bass is really a much larger organization. We're a media company. We have a, a very, very strong media presence within the fishing industry. Uh, Bassmaster Magazine, uh, Bass Times Magazine. We have Bassmaster.com, our website, which is the largest website for fishing there is in the in the world. And so, a lot of what we do is is driven by our media presence. Uh, we we live stream all of our tournament coverage. Uh, we are actually now on Fox Sports, the television broadcast, which is kind of a big deal for for fishing to actually be on live television. So we've got a lot of media platforms out there. What we're trying to transition more and more now is utilizing those media platforms to help tell Bass's conservation message. When the company was formed back in 1968, uh, Ray Scott envisioned really what, what he, he called a three-legged stool is what Bass was. One of the legs of the stool is competitive fishing, Bass tournaments. One of the legs of that stool was youth fishing, getting kids involved in the sport of bass fishing. And the third leg was conservation because he realized that without a healthy resource, without healthy waters, clean waters, uh, strong bass populations, he didn't have a business. And so you gotta have all three of the legs of that stool for it to stand up. 
And so that's one of the things that we've really tried are trying now more to ramp up is we've we've been involved in conservation for decades, but a lot of that's behind the scenes. And now we're trying to make that a little bit more visible, let people know a little bit more about what we're doing. Well, Bass has been a tremendous advocate for anglers all over the country and into Canada for a very long time. And bringing people in like yourself who are very seasoned and have a lot of experience in this field has been a key component of that. So how did you get involved in bass fishing and what is your background? How did you come to this area? I started out, you know, I got it like a lot of people. I got into fishing when I was a little kid. Um, I had an uncle who, who took me bass fishing, basically. I, I didn't start out catching bluegill or perch or crappie or whatever. Uh, we, we started out bass fishing when I was uh, probably 10 or 12 years old. And so I kind of got hooked on that right, up, right away. Hooked, yeah. Um, but, but that's kind of how we got things, got things started. And, and it just lit a fire. When I got into high school then, and I got into my biology classes, I realized that I had a real passion for the biology side of it as well. So, so now I'm, I'm an angler, and then I got involved in the biology, the science of it, and that just sort of carried on through, all through high school uh, and into college. And ultimately, when I got through with my uh, bachelor's and my master's degrees in fisheries, and I, I got a job as a, as a fishery research biologist, and most of the research I did was related to bass. And you're probably sitting there every day going, they're paying me to go out and look for bass. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, so it, it was one of those things where I was able to, to blend my, my passion, my hobby uh, for the sport with the science and was able to do that for, for many, many years with the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. And I, I retired after 32 years of, of service to the state. And about that time, uh, Bass came calling. I had worked with Bass, the company, for many, many years on fish care issues, going to the Bassmaster Classic, helping them, making sure that the fish were healthy, that we were all released because you know, all of our tournaments, we release all the fish after the, the weigh-ins. And so I knew them. They knew me. When I retired from the state, uh, my predecessor at Bass, Noreen Clow, who was the, the conservation director at the time, she was ready to retire. And so the timing was just right. And uh, I stepped into that role about 10 years ago. Well, I'll tell you, the Keeping Bass Alive initiative that you guys have done is absolutely fantastic. The media pieces that you've created, the science that is behind making sure when you release those fish, they swim away and continue to be productive and healthy. It's been a phenomenal, phenomenal part of what bass does. But it's funny uh, talking to you and talking to other people that know you. Everybody knows you're a passionate angler to this day. That said, you said it started back as a teenager. I don't know that I have ever seen two pictures of you that are the same, but every one of them always have a, has a picture of a fish in it. So there are a bunch of those floating around out there. And I always ask the, the, my passionate anglers, what was your first boat? Do you remember your first boat? Yeah, my dad was not an angler. Um, as I said, my, I had an uncle that kind of got me started. But 
my parents along the way they realized that there had been a fire lit and i just fell in love with fishing and so my dad decided that he was going to help kind of support this this habit and he bought a 13 foot tidecraft bass boat with a 28 horse sears motor let me tell you this this was uh you know it uh, this boat's only like it's got a maybe four feet wide you know it's it, it's compared to what what i think back now i think gosh how how did we not kill ourselves in that little boat but um you know it it, it served its purpose it was a start I, I had also kind of in conjunction with that i had a john boat just a little flat bottom aluminum that uh, buddy and i as soon as we were able to drive legally uh, we, we'd throw on top of my old station wagon that's how old i am i had a station wagon we we throw on top of this, and we terrorized every farm pond in the county. But but when we got the bass boat, that was, man, that was that was the deal. And uh, you know, going to some of the larger lakes, and uh, I grew up in North Texas, and uh, a, a lot of lakes had had just been built in the late '60s, and so there were quite a number of places around that were the the fishing was booming, and uh, that just helped fuel the fire. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, when you look at any type of sport, sports come and go in popularity with time. There, are, I mean, I always remember in the 70s, everybody played croquet, and you can't find anybody that plays croquet now. So, right, things come and go. But what is the future of bass, bass fishing looking like? Is it becoming more popular, less popular? Where do we, uh, where, what are our kids going to do and, and teach their kids to do? Are, are they going to be bass fishermen too? I, I think there's, there's some trends that, that are looking positive. If you look at the overall picture of like fishing license sales, that sort of thing across the country, we had a huge spike during the COVID uh, pandemic everybody was out of work or couldn't go to work so they went fishing and so there were huge numbers of licenses sold and of course we're, we're scaling back a little bit from that now uh, the 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 license sales are, are declining because people are going back to work they've got other stuff going on in their lives but we introduced people to fishing um, a lot of folks that had never been fishing before but what's really fueling from our industry, uh, from the bass fishing side, is the advent of high school bass fishing. High school fishing started relatively just a few years ago, but all of the demographics fit. When, when you talk to people that are in looking at, I don't even know, it's, you know, you've got baby boomers and Gen Zs and Gen Xs and all those Gen whatevers. I don't know what high school kids are called, but that generation of kids they like competition they like doing things with their friends they are concerned about the resources and the the outdoors things that they're going to inherit as they grow up and i'm looking at that and checking off the box tournament fishing high school tournament fishing it, it really fits and so what we're seeing is an explosion across the country it started with college fishing college fishing got pretty big but there's only so many colleges and we've kind of maxed out in terms of the college growth, but we haven't scratched the surface in high schools. And, and so there's a tremendous amount of potential there of exposing kids to the outdoors and to fishing. And now whether they stay involved in bass fishing, 
that would be great. But, you know, from, from the, the larger industry standpoint, just the fact that they're getting involved in fishing in the outdoors, a respect for clean water and the resources that, that the fishing depends on, we think that's got to be a good thing. Well, and you're engaging in something that is inherently positive, right? You're interacting with your environment. You're interacting with your friends in a positive way. All of those have good results at the end. So now that uh, we're seeing more and more young people starting to come into this. So now I've got a question for you as a angler yourself as a fisheries biologist and as a conservation director. So now you've got three hats on. I'm not sure which one you want to put on to answer this question. But what do you now as a seasoned angler and biologist know that you wish Gene Gillilan would have known as an 18-year-old trying to get out there on the water? I, th I think the, the missing piece that, that I grew up w without that's available now is the tremendous amount of information that's available on how to manage those resources for the long haul that we we didn't have back then you know when ray scott instituted the the whole what they used to call don't kill your catch program the the, the concept of catch and release for bass fishing in some of that that was kind of a defensive mechanism because if you have a bass tournament and a bunch of fish are killed, the, the people that live or, or fish in those lakes get pretty defensive, you know, because that's their fish. Well, and they see it as a negative thing sure. to, for the resource. Right, right. And so, so turning those fish loose, making sure we turn them loose at the end of the tournament, we're just borrowing the fish and, and, and they can be recycled and caught again. We didn't know that 40, 50 years ago. And, you know, so this, this process of protecting the resource, of making sure that it that we've got that that stewardship component is much stronger now than it was back then. And I think in terms of the quality of the fishing or the fisheries around the country and the, uh, the ups and downs that they've had, we probably could have smoothed some of that out if we had had a little bit more, you know, if we'd had that crystal ball that we could look into that, and, and know, well, here's what things are really going to be like in 30, 40, 50 years as, as lakes get older, as populations get, get bigger, as fishing pressure increases. We, we probably could have done a better job of managing things. But we can't, we can't roll the, the clock back. And so, you know, now we're at a point where we've got to get that crystal ball and try to look ahead and figure out, okay, what do we need to teach these kids now? so that they don't make the same mistakes we made 40, 50, 60 years ago. Well, unfortunately, we know a lot more about biology now. We, more, we know way more about fish population dynamics. We know more about the importance of good plants in a system. And, and that really brings me to my next question to you, is trying to understand the biology and the general connectiveness inside this lake and how every piece fits together. One of the things we hear a lot, and I've said over my life, is more grass equals more bass. And by grass, we're usually talking about hydrilla. So is that a statement that we need to be thinking about revising? Is it that simple? And why do we 
why do why have I even said it in the past? Is more grass does it always equal more bass? Well, I think we need to take the more out because there are situations where um, where grass typically does equal bass. It's just how many and how much, how how much vegetation, and and that translates into quantities, either plus or minus. Uh, and and uh, the the issue we've got to work with now is trying to get people to understand that every lake is different, every reservoir is different, and the inputs that go into that, the nutrients, the the water. The, there's so many variables that we can't have such a simplistic equation as grass equals bass. There, there's just so many things that that influence that equation it's almost like one of those quadratic equations you had to solve in algebra in high school that i have absolutely no idea how to do that anymore and i never had to use them either but um it it's it's uh it's a much more complex situation so the the whole concept of grass equals bass although on the surface it sounds good there's so many different variables that influence that that we really can't just say blanket, you know, if you have more vegetation, you're going to have more bass because it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've really struggled with is how to get my mind wrapped around this issue, because we know when you have too few plants. The fish will still be there, but they're going to be everywhere, and it's not how they would prefer to interact in that environment. If you have too much vegetation, well, now we can start having problems the other way. So it's finding that balance, right? And one of the things that Christine and I always say on this show is it's complicated. We really want to make things simple, and the best way that I think we can simplify it is you don't want more grass you want more managed grass if you have that now we can have balance but we don't want to be on either end of the spectrum in this scenario you know one of the things that that i used to to deal with a lot in my career with the state we did a lot of private pond consulting for free the state did it we they people would call up and say hey i've got a problem with my farm pond and you could go out to their pond and you could look at at the vegetation and figure out really quickly what was going on in that pond most of the time it was excessive vegetation too much cover plenty of forage but the bass couldn't get to the forage to feed so the bass were all skinny and stunted and and you made some recommendations well you've got to thin out the vegetation you've got to you've got to manage it you've got to we want some because we like to have that nursery cover for little fish to hide in but we've got to we've got to manage it and then you start scaling that up that same pond owner might fish a big lake and he's like well i want vegetation in my big lake too and we're saying okay think about we just what we just talked about the fish bowl is bigger but the principles are still the same and so there are limits to what you know what we want to try to put out there or have out there in terms of vegetation and so trying to get that message across to people that yes your your lake your pond river whatever it is uh, there's got to be some limits to the amount of 
vegetation. Uh, we, we don't want none. Uh, although, you know, there may be, depending on, on the species of fish that are being sought or the, the uses for that body of water, you know, that, that total eradication of everything it may, be the, may be actually the best thing for that body of water. But typically, we like to have some percentage of coverage of, of aquatic plants and, and try to maintain that over the long haul for the health of that fishery. And that's the really tricky part. Well, I'm glad you just used that term percentage because I was going to ask you this. So often I'll be in meetings and an agency will say, our goal is 30% and then we'll see stakeholders stay up and say, no, we want 60% or, and then the, the horse trading goes back and forth. But you've mentioned earlier and when we have an, episode, an earlier episode about lake personalities, every lake is different. So do you ever try to put a percent of, we want X percent across the board, or is it just too complicated for that? I, I think it's a little too complicated. A lot of what's come out of that with, I don't know if they'd call them studies, there were some surveys done by Texas Parks and Wildlife many years ago, probably 15 or 20 years ago, where they looked at the percentage surface coverage of aquatic vegetation and then compared that to the standing crops of bass in those lakes. And they came up with this sort of magic number that about 30% was the sweet spot that when you had more than that, you had too much escape cover for the forage. Uh, and, and the bass tended to be thin because they couldn't feed as effectively. If you had too little, then you didn't have as much nursery cover for the production and safety of little baby bass. So that kind of became the number that everybody uses all over the country. And, and, it's, and, and that's the, the problem. It's like you say, every lake is going to be a little bit different. And so it, it's hard to say that, yes, I want 30% of XYZ in this lake because that may or may not fit that particular system. And it, it may be impossible to achieve, just depending on the types of plants you're dealing with and, and all the other factors that go into wh whether it's a natural lake or whether it's a reservoir, you know, all the multiple uses of those systems. And so that kind of became a benchmark that, that everybody said, well, that's the number we need to look at. And it may or may not fit. Right. It's not a bad number and it came from real data, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's always realistic because I've seen lakes that have a heavy nutrient load and they are just naturally going to support more plants and they need more plants in them because of the watershed. Others are just different. They're never going to support that much vegetation and we can plant native plants until we're blue in the face and we're going to have low levels of vegetation. Yeah. So it's every lake is an individual and they really have to be managed biologically and by somebody who understands that watershed i'll give you a good example of the the one of the lakes in oklahoma that we managed one probably the best bass lake in oklahoma is grand lake it's where the Bassmaster classic has been a couple of times and will be again next spring when you when you listen to some of the anglers that have fished all around the country they talk about grand lake being one of the best bass lakes in the country that has no grass 
because it doesn't. How could it possibly be a good fishery? Right, right. And, and you know, there's, there's a combination of habitat there that, has, that does pretty well at producing bass, whether the nutrient loads, the, the whole food chain, everything is, is pretty good. But it doesn't have any vegetation in it. In fact, very, very few of the lakes, the reservoirs in Oklahoma that, that I used to work on, have any vegetation because they fluctuate like yo-yos all up and down 5, 10, 20 feet a year. Uh, a lot of times the water's turbid and plants don't do well if they can't get sunlight. So, you know, but that's the, the hand of cards that we were dealt as, as fishery managers. That's what we had to work with. On the other extreme, you've got lakes that that do get tremendous amounts of nutrients. They do have very stable water levels. They are plant factories. And, and in some cases, when invasive species get into them, bad things happen, and, and they can become overrun with those kind of plants that can actually make things considerably worse. And, and that's where we run into a lot of our conflicts is, Where's that balance? Well, and too much of a good thing is rarely a good thing, right? It, it needs to be in balance, and it needs to be lake-by-lake, lake, situation-by-situation. Well, the fact that we're sitting here today uh, upstairs from the Aquatic Plant Management Society meeting, there is uh, plant managers from all over the country assembled here. So in your role, you have had the luxury and the opportunity to meet with different types of groups agencies, uh, non-government organizations all over the country for a long time. So from your role and your perspective here at this conference, what do you wish that a plant manager would be more aware of as they are going about and doing and participating in their role on the lake? Well, some of the things that we talked about in the session this morning were, were knowing your stakeholders. And, and knowing the empathizing it was the term that, that we, in fact, I think a couple of the speakers and my, myself included, that that was one of the things that we brought out was you got to know who the stakeholders are. You got to know who the users of those, those waters are and what their wants and needs are and try to take that into consideration. And if, if you're in a position to be, to be managing an aquatic plant community, it it really needs to be well thought out, a plan, plenty in advance, making sure that you understand, if I do this, what's going to happen? Uh, if A, then B, then C, and, and kind of work your way through that, that situation uh, and how it's going to impact all those different users and because that's, you know, the, the, I think one of the other terms that, that came out that was the whole idea of compromise. You know, some kind of consensus opinion among all of those stakeholders of what can we do that can keep everybody maybe not completely satisfied, but as much as possible and try to meet the goals, the needs of each of those groups as best we can. Well, and I think we go back to, again, it's complicated, right? I have seen stakeholder groups on plant factory Florida lakes that this is what they know. That is what that lake looks like. Well, then you go 200 miles north across the state line into Georgia, 
it's still passionate anglers, still really excellent people who love their lake. They might want something different because that lake's not a plant factory. And when get, there starts being what they feel is too much, they want things to be different. So it's not just that you have to follow the biology, but you have to know your stakeholders and be willing to work with them because they change too. Sure. And for the most part, nature has a whole lot more to say about what's going on than we do. And I think about Gunnersville Lake in Alabama has had a history of aquatic plant issues for decades, overgrowth issues, uh, hydrilla, milfoil. A few years ago, we had some really huge, big floods on the Tennessee River, scoured a lot of things out. A lot of those plants went away. Fishermen are moaning and groaning about, oh my gosh, all the grass is gone. And here comes the eelgrass. And now there's too much of it. And the fishermen are complaining about, we, we don't want this stuff. We, we want the old grass. We don't like the new grass. And, and the, the plant manager like, we don't have a whole lot of say in, in how this works. And, and so it's, you know, fishermen are a little bit fickle in that respect that, um, you know, on one hand they say, well, we want, we want the, the hydrilla and the milfoil, but oh no, we don't want this other stuff. And yet, like you say, 100 miles down the road, there's probably another lake that would just love to have that eelgrass uh, because they don't have anything. And we have spent millions of dollars planting it all over the country for the last 50 years. Yeah. Right? Because we more people want it. Right. They call for it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time in the lakes that I used to manage in Oklahoma. We, we tried to, to plant gosh, I don't know, 30, 40 different species of plants. We tried everything to see what we could come up with that might tolerate the conditions we had to deal with. As it turns out, almost nothing did. But, but it still, it, you know, it was an effort. And uh, so when you've got situations where there's not, that are not ideal, and the, too much or too little, going back to your question about what does the manager do, you talk to all the stakeholders and you say, okay, what, where do we want to go? What's our goal here for each one of these groups? And, and then you make some proposals and you try to figure out what will fit in with each of those groups. Uh, maybe it is trying to introduce uh, a species of aquatic plant. Uh, maybe it is reducing or eliminating uh, the excess of some other plants that are already there. But, uh, you know, I think the, the, management, the management organizations, the controlling authorities, just have to learn to be uh, very flexible and, and realize that there's uh, a lot of differences of opinion out there, and we got to try to work around all of them. Just as complicated as the biology can be, the social component can be just as complicated. And we, and we need to be aware of that and willing to accept that, too. I, I think, you know... You, you talk to most most of the professors around the country that are that are teaching fishery management, fishery biology now. They will they will tell their students that managing the fish is the easy part. It's managing the people that is the hard part. And unfortunately, a lot of times in college they don't they don't get a lot of training in that component. Right. And so those managers, whether they're aquatic plant managers or the fish biologists, the managers, 
they don't have a lot of experience in that people part. And, and the social aspects are becoming more and more and more part of their job. Well, doctors are specifically taught bedside manner, and I guess now it's time to start teaching our fisheries <laughs> biology some bedside manner as well. Well, Gene, I really appreciate you stepping up here and uh, recording this conversation with sure. us. It's been fantastic to spend the day with you. But as we're wrapping up, is there anything that you would like to just leave the listeners with today? Well, I think the, the, that I listened to this morning uh, and talking to some people here at the conference, the, we've got to listen to each other. And, and that's a big part of it is making sure that the public is understood by the managers and that the public also understands the constraints and the things that the managers are hamstrung by in a lot of cases. Maybe it's laws or regulations, that sort of thing. They've got, they've got people tugging at their strings from all different directions, too. So, you know, listen to each other. And, and I think the, the whole concept of working hand in hand rather than button heads is the way to go. Well, I think that is perfectly said, and I'll just add that there's some things that I've heard today that I'm very excited about. I'm very excited that bass fishing is continuing to grow, that there is a new user group, there are new age groups that are getting involved, that are becoming connected to their environment, that are wanting to have a say in what is going on in their lake. I love that. I'm so happy that instead of just going their own way, that they are really wanting to to connect in a positive way. But secondly, I'm encouraged by plant management is evolving too. We're getting better at it, but not just better at managing plants and being more environmentally responsible, but I do think we are getting better at listening to the stakeholder as well. We're not perfect. Uh, we have a very, very long way to go, but understanding that this is the direction can help us get there, and we really appreciate you coming and sitting down with us in our symposium this morning helping emphasize some of these concepts and hopefully in a few years we'll circle back on this and say man remember when we used to have to talk about we needed to listen aren't you glad we're in a better place now so that's what i'm hoping for well i appreciate the invitation and uh you know that yeah let's let's all move forward together excellent thank you gene thank you Thank you all so much for listening to Working in the Weeds. If you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for joining us as we continue to work on turning science into solutions. 